Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Tweaked Audio earbuds and headphones. Right now, listeners of this podcast can get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com just by entering the offer code Other People, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Go to tweakedaudio.com, enter the offer code Other People, make a purchase, get 33% off, get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, listen to things with those devices. Listen to this program with those devices, tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, right. everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something you can do in the fetal position. This is not, parenthetically speaking. Hello. Hello out there. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. You're not actually here. You know what I mean. It's good to see you. I'm not seeing you. You know what I mean. My guest is Daniel Handler, also known as Lemony Snicket. He has a new novel out. It's a novel for adults called We Are Pirates, an excellent book available now from Bloomsbury. Uh, it also happens to be the official March selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com, for those of you who are not in the know, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own book club every month. Uh, I pick a title along with uh, my colleague, Jonathan Evison. We curate the book club, and uh, you can join it for nine ninety nine a month. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. It's a great deal. It's a great way to support literary culture. Why don't you do that? Go to TheNervousBreakdown.com, click on Book Club in the menu bar. So things are good. I'm okay. I have a little bit of a cold. But uh I'm 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 just pushing through it. I'm ignoring it. I have to go to the dentist later today. Is it irresponsible to go to the dentist when you have a cold? I'm not hugely symptomatic. It's kind of a chest thing. I have some mail here. I have a letter uh, from a listener named Stefan who writes to me sometimes. He says, hi, Brad, your program has been a real solace for me lately. I've been going through some anxious nights and other people has been like a balm in this noisy, pressurized world. The candor with which you've been speaking about your wife's pregnancy and your financial concerns has really, ta has really taken the show to a deeper level. As you continue to probe about making a living as a literary person. I can't help but wonder about the unpublished novels you've written. If I were you, I think I'd call my agent and say I'm ready to hustle these books. I know they're not perfect in your estimation, but that's true of all of our work. All best, Stefan. So, thank you, Stefan. Uh, I appreciate the good wishes, and I think, uh, I think there's something to what you're saying. You know? And I, you know, I'm a superstitious person when it comes to work in progress, but I will tell you this, I have been working on stuff. I have been advancing projects, both, uh, on the literary side and on the film and television side. And, you know, book wise lately, I've been working like crazy, which makes me happy. 
and also a little nervous. I mean, who knows, you know, it's like a day to day thing. One day I think it's great. The next day I think it sucks. The next day I think it's great. You just have to sort of ride that out. But, um, you know, I'm kind of a perfectionist. I want it to be good. It has to feel right. I don't want to publish just to publish, but there is an element of, uh, pragmatism, financial pragmatism involved. And just, there is just a financial element period. You got to produce work. You got to publish work. You hopefully sell some work here and there. Trust me, I get that. But uh, the plan right now, I feel like I'm jinxing myself by even talking about this, but the plan is to finish the book before uh, my second uh, child is born this summer. Because once that happens, I feel like everything's just going to blow up. In a good way. But I mean, you know, who am I fooling? I'm probably not going to be writing a novel for a while. So that's where things are. It needs to happen faster, but you can't rush this stuff. I mean, you can rush it to a point, but then, uh, you know, once you get to that point, you just have to sort of deal with the thing on its own terms and let it come into being at its own pace. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Daniel Handler. Very pleased to have him here. We had a great time talking. And, uh, you know, this guy has sold some books. Speaking of selling books. Speaking of being in the exact opposite situation. <laughs> um, but j- just a, a very gifted guy and uh, very pleased to be featuring We Are Pirates in the, in the Nervous Breakdown Book Club this month. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Daniel Handler. I am in my home in San Francisco. Um, I um, was doing some work at the dining room table. So I have many index cards spread out on the dining room table, and I am walking away from the dining room table so the index cards will not further attract my attention and coming to sit at my only quasi-messy desk. Okay, so you what do you, like you outline on note cards? Um, yeah, I mean... I guess it's an outline. I'm in the very baby steps on a book, and so I have a few index cards and um, they have ideas on them, and I'm staring at them um, as if at a Zen rock garden, I guess. <laughs> so it'll eventually be an outline, but right now it's, um, I don't know what it is. Are you color coding these things? Like, is that, does that have anything to do with it? Or is it... No. Okay. Nope. They're just... Um, I mean, I guess it's because you can't, I, I mean, there must be some programs, but I've never seen anything where you can duplicate on screen kind of moving things around. 
Um, and I like a lot of surface area, and so my desk has too much stuff on it to move things around. Yeah, no, see, I feel like uh, there's a there's a, a software program called Scrivener. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I mean, people keep suggesting various programs to me, but, um, it, you know, it's no problem to have index cards at a table, really. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, here's the thing, because I was thinking, like, Scrivener, even, I don't, I don't use this myself, but I do know that it has uh, a note card function, but the problem is that, uh, the, there's not enough space. The computer monitor isn't big enough to really have it all laid out in front of you in a way that's like visually satisfying. Yeah, and it just feels to me like if they invented a pill to um, so you would never have to have delicious Mexican food again, you could just take it, and then you'd never want that. Like I, it doesn't it doesn't fix the problem that I have. Right. <laughs> but this is how is this how you start all your books with the note cards? Uh, it's how I've started my last handful of books, yes. Um, and is there any difference between like writing for uh, adults or writing for children in terms of process? Um, not in terms of, well, it depends which part of the process, I guess. Um, with adult novels, I'm usually starting from something very abstract. I might have an idea for a scene or kind of a structure or something like that. And the Snicket books, there's usually something in place. You know, it's usually a whole series of books or otherwise conforms to a very specific format. So this will probably be an adult book. And right now it's in a very, very, very abstract phase. Okay. So just like, just to drill down into this a little bit more, because I'm sure there's going to be listeners who are uh, curious about this, is that, you know, because I, I, I write uh, for adults, you know, I've never tried to write a children's book, but now I have a daughter and I'm sort of thinking like, oh, it'd be sort of cool to write something for her. Um, but it's, it's a matter of how to like approach it. So when you write the Snicket books, um, is that more of like a, I mean, a template or a, a, like a much more defined form? Is that what you're saying? Um, well, definitely for a series of unfortunate events, um, which has a set cast of characters and, um, a new setting every time and a 13 chapter format and things like that. So right. um, once I figured that out, I mean, I guess in the early stages it was very abstract because every idea is very abstract. But I mean, by the time I was writing volume four, volume five, I kind of had a 13 slotted piece of paper in my head that I could fit things into. Okay. Um, All the wrong questions. Similarly is it's the other snicket series and that has, some similar stuff to that as well. And then when I've done things like write a picture book, um, the text is so small that it's more like writing a poem than it is like writing a book. And so, so I didn't have 19 things on index cards moving around because that would already be too many things. You just had like what, like one index card? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I would have an image or... Um, I mean, one of my picture books is called 13 Words, so I had 13 words written on index cards in the very beginning. Um, with the dark, which I wrote with, with John Clausen, he had an image of a boy on stairs with a dark underneath. And so I just looked at that for a while. Okay. So, and, and is there one type of book that is most difficult for you or are they all pretty much the same? Um, I guess they're all the same. I mean, it would be difficult to say that a picture book for the writer is as difficult as a whole novel. I mean, I just don't know how it how it could be, right? but it's a lot more work than it looks like, but still the matter of polishing, you know, 18 sentences can't possibly be the same as polishing 400 pages. Right. But like, when so you, I guess when you, the adult when, ones are more difficult. But. Like we are pirates versus the Snicket books. You would say we are pirates is probably a more challenging lift. I guess so. I mean, I, in my head, a series of unfortunate events is kind of one big long novel. And so that took a long time and it, used a lot of improvisation and things like that because it was being published serially. We Are Pirates, I worked on for a few years and then put aside for a few years and then came back to it. Okay, and so what about that? You know, because um, I think that there's, there can sometimes be, you probably don't have this as much as maybe other writers, but like there can be like that rush to need to publish, like I got to get something out there, I got to get that advance or whatever. And, um, you know, did you find that the book benefited from getting to kind of sit and incubate? Um, it really did. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I, I knew writers who had always said that they put stuff away for a long time. And not only did I not think it was beneficial, but I realized that I didn't believe them. Um, I just thought that was 
some some lie that people said. I don't know why I decided not to believe that. But when a writer would say, oh, I put this aside for a year, I would think, you did not. You were just a year behind. <laughs> um, and I don't know where that ungenerous reading came from. But then when I put my own book away, I thought, I'm never going back to this. And then when I did go back to it, it was so wonderful. It was such a tonic to be away from it for a while. And so in that spirit, I have um, quickly written uh, over the last year and a half, I've written two first drafts that I've put away. And I'm going to write up, I think I'm going to write this first draft that is just beginning to be laid out on my dining room table and then put that away too. So, what's so it's the, kind so of my what, new method is to put something away. Okay, yeah. So, and But for how long? Do you have a defined like period of time? I probably couldn't do these books more than a year just because the only reason I put them away is that I decided I was going to put them away. You know, I'm not putting them away in despair. I'm just putting them away like I'm aging cheese or something. <laughs> I get so, it, I get it. Um, so it'll probably be a year and then I'll look at them again. Yeah, but then you come at it with fresh eyes and you can see it 100% more clearly. So like with That's my fantasy anyway, yeah. We'll see. But it's it, definitely what happened with the pirate book. The pirate book had a bunch of problems and then I put it away. And then when I took it up again, the problems seemed so easy to spot and so easy to fix. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I literally looked at the book for the first time in maybe two years, and I went down the hill to a cafe and read all the way through it with coffee in my hands, and I thought this was going to be the beginning of a six-month process, and I immediately had a short list of what I wanted to do, that was it. and it really only took a, a couple of months to work that all out. It was pretty amazing. So at this point, so I'm hoping that will happen with all books in the future, but every time I think I've found the perfect method, it doesn't work, so... Well, but I mean, and at this point in your writing career, I imagine it's fairly easy for you to get published, or at least easier than it used to be. And I wonder about writers who are in that situation and whether or not uh, you ever worry about getting edited well, like getting enough pushback. Like, do you have an editor or do you require of whoever it is that, that is editing you that they really, um, you know, come back at you with a lot of uh, notes and fixes? Or is it something that you feel like you can do pretty much on your own? Um, I'm, I definitely get a lot of pushback. I mean, my children's editor, Susan Rich, and I have been working together forever, and she has no conjunctions about saying this book is a total mess, and um, I don't have the kind of ego that will say, oh, yeah, I bet we could publish it tomorrow, and we'll sell a gazillion copies. So, so we have a pretty smooth working relationship that doesn't seem like it's gotten more complicated with time or with success, and then... Um, we Are Pirates was my first book with a new editor, so she wasn't really shy either. <laughs> Good. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I, that, that's what I would want anyway. Like I, you, you, like, I don't – I mean, I have some confidence in myself, but I also greatly appreciate when someone saves me from myself. You know, like there's nothing better than a good note where you're like, oh, thank you. you know, like, yeah, well, and you just want a fresh perspective. I mean, I trust myself to be able to get dressed too, but every so often <laughs> when I'm leaving the house, my wife will say, you missed a belt loop. <laughs> right. You know, I don't think like, why don't you trust my process of getting dressed? <laughs> I say, oh, thank you. You're right, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, and the other thing I notice about you, I mean, looking at like, uh, you know, your publication history is that you, you have a pretty uh, incredible... Uh, work ethic it seems like you're pretty prolific like are you working constantly you seven day a week person what's how's this getting um basically five days a week i don't know what else to do with myself besides work frankly um i mean i'm just at the end of about a month-long tour for the pirate novel and i didn't work then and when i got home i took a couple days where i slept a little late or took some walks or things like that, but um, I just really started to feel the urge, so here the index cards are. About back, back at it. Table. Yeah. And so, I mean, uh, I don't have a day job. I'm lucky enough to only write for a living. Right. Well, and So many yeah. people I know say, oh, you have this work ethic. It's amazing. I don't have that. And I think, yeah, but you're teaching three creative writing classes right now. Right. So, yeah, that, <laughs> so you do have a work ethic. <laughs> this isn't attached to the novel because you don't have enough time. Well, and I want, I want to get to that because that is a unique set of circumstances for somebody who writes fiction, you know, to be able to do it full time, like increasing, yeah. increasingly so. But I, you know, it didn't start that way, obviously. And uh, I, w I was reading, uh, reading up on you and uh, your first book, The Basic Eight, was rejected 37 times. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Okay, so you know, like for every anyone listening who might be uh, envious of uh, Daniel's situation, like yeah, the first novel that got rejected thirty-seven times, that should maybe hearten people <laughs> to, to know that you have su- you have suffered similarly. So, like, what was that process like? How did you get started in your career? Um, you know, uh, did you ever feel like you were going to just like throw in the towel? Um. Well, to answer the last question first, yes, all the time. I just couldn't imagine what I was going to do. And when I thought about pursuing some other career, that seemed just so depressing to me. The idea that I would permanently say to myself, no, I'm not going to be writing fiction anymore. And I couldn't think of what to do that would allow me to write fiction concurrently. I mean, I'd had a lot of miserable office jobs and some freelance writing gigs and things like that. And they were all leaving me hopelessly broke and full of despair. So, yeah, I thought about, I thought all the time, this isn't going to work. And then I dug myself into a hole, you know, over the years that I had committed to writing fiction and nothing was happening. So that was really hard. Okay, so then the basic aid after 37 rejections gets picked up by whom? I got picked up by St. Martin's Press um, for $5,000, I don't mind saying. So then that was kind of a new problem because I thought it was one thing to be absolutely broke when you hadn't sold a novel, but then to be absolutely broke when you had sold a novel <laughs> seemed like a differently shaped problem to me. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing though. You do all that work and you get there and it's like, here's five grand, you know, and you got to start somewhere, I guess, but it just seems like the, the money is not even anywhere near commensurate with the work. Well, it, but I mean, more than that, it just doesn't do anything. I mean, you can't, I mean, I don't mean to sound ungrateful for $5,000, certainly, but I, you know, all it did was kind of keep my head just an inch above water for about 45 seconds. I was living in Manhattan at the time. So, you know, I felt like I could have just gone out and bought a book at a meal and my advance would be half gone. Um, And the basic aid is set in a high school, and because of that, a couple of editors had said to me, do you think you'd consider writing something for children? And um, I said no, because I didn't know anything about children's literature. But once the basic age sold, and I was working actually on what I thought was a mock Gothic novel for adults that was called A Series of Unfortunate Events, and I was putting it aside, and I thought, okay, you have no money, and you just put a book aside and you said you weren't interested in writing for children, but you're starting to think that actually this gothic novel would be a lot more interesting and more workable if it had children in it. So let's try this. And that was the beginning of Lemony Snicket. That was, yeah. Well, and how did, where does the, I know you've told this story a million times, but for the benefit of people listening who don't know, like what is the origin of that uh, pseudonym? Oh, uh, well, when I was researching the basic age... Um, I was calling some right-wing political organizations and asking them to mail me their materials so I could mock them in my novel, and (laughs) I didn't want to be on their mailing list. So um, one of them said, so what's your name so we can mail you these materials? And I thought to myself, oops, and then I immediately said, Lemony Snicket. It just came into my head, and um, they fell for it. You know, they didn't say, that's not a real name. You're obviously not a real person. Goodbye. <laughs> they just said, okay, is that spelled how it sounds? And then it was just a name that I mean, it was kind of a joke name that my friends and I used kind of bumming around town. If we were, uh, you know, we might give that name to the major D so they would have to say Lemony Snicket Party of Three at the bar or something. Right, right. And, and then when I started writing the Snicket books, I thought it would be interesting to publish the books under the name of the narrator rather than under the name of the author to keep the kind of mysterious circumstances of the books intact. And then I had the pseudonym lying around, so I just kind of used it. Okay, and so then these, so then the, the books, uh, you know, they start to appear in the world. At what point did you know that you uh, had, like, an incredible hit on your hands? Well... Kind of right away, because my definition of critical hit was so small. Like, um, before the first two volumes were published, we sold some foreign rights, um, which actually 
because of the deal and because of the size of my advance actually earned out my advance. You know, so I didn't owe my publisher any money when the books were published, which is kind of amazing. Wow. I mean, most people don't earn out their advance at all. And I had earned it out before it was published. Now, that's more testament to the size of the advance <laughs> than it is anything else. But, but, but that really felt like success to me. Okay, so, but I mean, like, when the, the, when the first Lemony Snicket book sold, uh, did that process feel uh, different than, like, say, when the Basic 8 sold? Like, was there a lot of excitement? Did you sense anything positive from the sales process that might have led you to believe that it could really... Well, I mean, it was already amazing that I had a contract to write books before I'd written them. Like, I started to mess around with a gothic novel and put children in it. And then I told this editor who had asked me if I were interested in writing for children, I told her my idea. And then a few days later, I had a contract. Wow. It was the exact opposite of the basic gate in which I wrote it painstakingly and edited it. And although it went through further edits after it was purchased, it was kind of perfect in my head. And then for years, my agent tried to sell it and nothing happened. So... That's what I mean by, I, I mean, I couldn't believe that I had a contract for books that I hadn't written when I was an utterly unknown writer. Yeah. So that felt like success. And then um, I went on a first book tour for Lemony Ticket, and I remember once 10 people showed up, and that felt like a booming success. You know, I was in a city where I didn't know anyone. And ten people showed up, and so when and I thought, "Oh my God, total strangers! Ten total strangers are showing up to talk to me." Yeah, it's not like relatives or friends or anything like that. Like these right? Are, yeah. So, and you would do this, like you would do these readings, uh, in kind of a sly, performative way, where you would show up as Lemony Snicket's handler, um, right? I mean, yeah, I would say that Lemony Snicket couldn't come, and I would come up with elaborate, transparently false excuses why he wasn't there. Um, I mean, the whole thing was such a lark to me, and it was so unbelievable that it was happening that um, I think it gave me the freedom to do things that I otherwise might have been strangled by self-consciousness to do. Like you, and you would perform, you play, because like, you're also, you've got a performative aspect to you uh, artistically that not all writers have, and uh, you also have a, a musical talent. You have a musical gift. Uh, you play the accordion. You've played with the magnetic fields. You can sing. Yeah, I play the accordion. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a gift. <laughs> but, hey, anybody, anybody, anybody who can functionally play an instrument has a gift in my book. But okay, uh, I've heard well, you sing. Sanderson, yes, it is a gift. Yeah, and and I've heard you sing. Like you can carry a tune for sure. Yeah, I had a very intense uh, musical training growing up, so that served me pretty well. And so, um, do you think that when you went out and you were doing? Uh, the book tour for for Lemony Snicket in the you know at the outset or in those early years, do you think that the uh, performing uh, at these like tour stops helped sell the book in a really significant way, or do you think that the book would have done well anyhow? I don't know. I mean, the whole thing feels like a miracle to me, but mostly it was fun, and I was liking what I was doing, and I think in general that kind of thing is contagious. Right. I think when I go and hear a writer read, and you can tell that it's their umpteenth tour stop and they're utterly exhausted. Um, it's not inspiring. Right. Even if the book is good, you, it's kind of a tired experience to go. And um, on this, on the tour for the pirate book, I asked a poet to read with me at each stop for kind of the same reason. So I would always be fully engaged in the evening. You know, I wouldn't just be saying, hello, Denver, I can't wait to get back to my hotel and go back to sleep. This is my novel. <laughs> you know, then instead, there, were different, there was a different poet at each stop, so I was listening, and it forced a conversation on stage that had to be in the moment and about what it was, so I just wasn't on autopilot. And, and do you think, like, at the outset, you, you're talking about how, like, the, the whole thing seemed like a lark to you, and you couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, do you think that the fact that there wasn't maybe that self-imposed pressure or that there, you, you, it seems like there was maybe more freedom than most writers would allow themselves. Or, and, and do you think that had something to do with maybe why things... Well, I think the whole thing encouraged me to get over my own pretensions about literature, which were pretty hot and heavy, Right. Um, certainly on the adult side. You know, I thought of literature as being an unbelievably serious and important thing. And, um, you know, Nabokov was a hero of mine. And every, and not just in terms of prose style and imagination, but I just used to think like I should be being treated like Nabokov, 
Is that how you pronounce it, by the way? I've always said Nabokov. I think it's because uh, that, that police. Yeah, song. I don't know. My Russian professor at college taught me Nabokov, but okay. that, it makes everyone say, "Is that how you?" <laughs> so. no, I'm, I'm fully with you. I'm, I'm going to change my ways. Um, and so I just felt very serious about the whole thing, you know. And I and I meet a lot of young writers who are like that, who are kind of waiting for their close up in a way. And they're not comfortable with the fact that the history of literature is just an effort to put a lot of things down on paper and that there aren't hard and fast rules about any of it. Um, and I think the Snicket stuff really made me realize, oh, you can really do anything. And it set me free to write and also to be a person. Yeah. You know, I don't think to myself, is this podcast, you know, part of a mosaic of my own self-image <laughs> that can help me be the literary light that I know is inside me? I just think like, hey, that's fun. He talks to good people. Let's do this. Well, you know what? I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that because, I, you know, I think there is occasionally a thing with people who are like, uh, you know, maybe like uh, overly guarded about their uh, self-presentation in a way that starts to slide into the pretentious or something. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not that many people are paying attention. You know? <laughs> like, right. Um, I don't know. I, I, but I appreciate you saying that. And I, uh, I wanted to ask, well, I mean, you I think it's an understandable development because, um, most people who come to writing have had a pretty serious education, right. at least in America, you know? And so they've been taught literature the way it's taught in advanced high school English classes and in, prestigious universities, which I think is great from an academic point of view. But if you're actually trying to write novels, um, you, you know, you need to look at Virginia Woolf in a different way than revere her all the time. Right. Yeah. Take them down off their pedestal. Yeah. So, uh, so how many, let me snicket. I read somewhere it sold 60 million copies. Is that a, is that an inflated number or is that accurate? Uh, no, that's accurate. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere in there. Yeah. So your books have sold more than sixty million copies. Yes. That's that's a that's insane. <laughs> it is. It's totally insane. So you're very wealthy, and I know that you've written about this, uh, and uh, admirably so. I think you're. You know, that some. You, I think you wrote a piece in the New York Times about being wealthy, which um, is always a relief to me when people talk honestly about money because I don't think it happens enough in our uh, world. But especially for a writer and knowing so many other writers, most of whom are the exact opposite, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, like, how, how do you process that? Like, what in the world? Uh, I mean, did, did anything, did, did you ever go through like a bad period where you were disillusioned with it or where you became like a cocaine monster and went nuts? Or you know, <laughs> like, what, a, um, what do you do when you start making millions, like, I mean, millions of dollars start raining down on you? It's very crazy. It's a crazy feeling. Um, I mean, it's such a wacky miracle that it's happened. And, um, you know, it was so far from anything that I ever thought would happen to me. You know, it's just not a problem you think about. <laughs> when you embark on a career in writing serious fiction, you don't think to yourself, oh, my God, I'll have too much money. How will that feel? Um and I mean, I have a lot of friends who I've been friends with forever who also never thought that anything was going to happen with me. So that's great. Um, and then just the, um, the feeling of giving a lot of money away is pretty amazing. And particularly in support of the arts and education and literature and things that feel so much part of my life. That feels pretty amazing. Did, so did, for, it, did it change any relationships like close relationships, you know, cause money can do that. It can make, can mess with people's heads. Like, did you ever, you feel people feeling jealous of you or having expectations of you that you find unreasonable? Um, not in such a way that's bothered me. I mean, I'm sure that people are, have been envious because, I, I mean, I can't imagine how that couldn't be, but, um, I'm very envious right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's hard to talk about being envied without sounding hopelessly arrogant, but I mean, I just think, right. I mean, it's how I feel when any writer I know wins a prize. I'm envious. Sure. You know, and I'm not, um, I'm not peace nationally throw myself off a bridge. How could this happen? Envious. 
But I think like, well, that must feel good, and I like feeling good, so maybe that could happen to me. Right. Um, but it hasn't. No, it hasn't soured any um, relationships that I know about. Anyway, maybe someone is secretly grinding an axe. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think too. Like I find that people who are re- like wealthy, I feel like people are often a lot nicer to them. Like, or at least. Uh, there's a gravity, like people gravitate towards that. And I guess, why would they not? You know, it's like, if you're going to gravitate towards people, like it's, it's nicer to be around people who are doing well and like, aren't like, uh, struggling. You know what I'm saying? I think it's kind of like human nature. Well, it's definitely, I mean, the, the, to be freed of the burden of worrying about money is pretty amazing. It's certainly amazing. I think in particular in the arts, although Lord knows there are plenty of other occupations that don't pay well. So I think in that case, it's been positive for sure. I mean, it's been positive in every case. But the, I mean, to have lived for years just knowing that I didn't have any money and feeling the low-grade panic of that all the time um, was hard. Yeah. And I think it's really hard when you are sitting down, you get interested in a story, and you want to write a novel, and meanwhile you're feeling financial panic, and you begin to think to yourself, what am I doing? Why... <laughs> How could I? How could this plan of writing a novel free me from the worry that is on my mind? Right. So that's pretty amazing to be free of that. My God. So, uh, what? Like, if what? What is the number? Like, like you talk about being at a point where you don't have to worry about money. Is there a number that you hit? Where I guess it's different for every person, but I mean, what's the threshold of not having to worry about money anymore? Is it like, is, that, is there a commonly known thing among among people who don't have to worry about money? <laughs> like, do you have a fi- do you have a financial? <laughs> no. The only thing I've heard is that everybody secretly wishes everyone's magic number is twice what they have. That's what I've heard. But that isn't true in my case. Um, You're satisfied. Well, I I mean, what I really like is giving money away. And that's really fun. And that's a continued drive to have money come my way so I can give it away. Right. But, um, but there's nothing I'm in a, very content place in terms of my own personal accoutrements. Yeah. You do a lot of, um, do you do a lot of traveling and stuff like that? Um, do I do a lot? I mean, recreational travel, not as much as I kind of always thought I would, frankly, I tour a lot still. I travel a lot to talk about my books and, um, that means that when I get home, I'm not really hungry to travel, but my sister just moved to Australia for a couple of years. So we're going to go see her in a little bit. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I get on planes. You, you, you go on like you don't have your own jet, like the, the lemony snicket? <laughs> no, I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I actually don't think I could afford that, but oh. maybe I can, I don't know how much it costs, but anyway, that's too embarrassing. <laughs> Net jets or something. That's incredible. Um, so, okay. So that, that happens. You're free to do all this, uh, creative work for the rest of your days, um, without anything really impeding you. Uh, and you never, that never affected your, like that freedom has never affected your creative process. It really did just free you up and you've been working steadily ever since. You never had a period where you were like, oh my God, this is too good or this is too much time, which would be silly, but I could see happening somehow if you were neurotic enough. Um, definitely there was a time when a series of unfortunate events was taking up just a huge part of my life and my wife's life. Um, it was about the time, I guess the movie was coming out and it was just, um, I I was on the road a lot and I was talking about my own work a lot and that just didn't feel that healthy. I don't think it's healthy to talk about yourself all the time. Yeah. You got to compress that. You mean like, do you have, you got to like, like if you're doing a tour, you're doing a publicity push, like it's fine to do it, but like six weeks, eight weeks is probably enough. Yeah, it feels a little like you want to put on your hazmat suit and go and do it, and then you want to stop drinking. <laughs> well, I'm, um, glad, I'm glad to be a part of that for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm home. I'm well-rested, so I'm not... Good. Well, I mean, you said earlier yeah. that you were at the end of your tour, and I, I was like, oh, man. I, like, I generally like to talk to people at the beginning of their tour for precisely that reason, because I've talked to authors at the end of a book tour before, and you can just see like the light has gone out in their eyes. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. <laughs> Well, I scheduled the book tour such that the end of it had all these dates in the Bay Area, so I was sleeping in my own bed, oh, good. which is really all the difference in the world. Sure. So, and like, so the Bay Area, that's home. That's lifelong home. Uh, I grew up here, and then 
uh, I went to college on the East Coast, and then I moved back here to slack around for a little bit, and then I lived in New York for about five years, and then I moved back here in 2000, and I don't think I'm going anywhere. Okay. So, okay. So, what, you grew up in the city proper? Yep. All right. Where, what part of the city? Uh, I live, I grew up near West Portal. Okay. I don't know if you, how well people know the city, but San Franciscans will know where that is. All right. Um, and now I live basically in hate. Okay. And so, and your, uh, your mother was an opera singer. No, she was not an opera singer. Is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, that's like an internet rumor that will not die. Okay. It's totally fascinating to me. My parents met at the opera. This is the only thing, way I can imagine that that came from. See, it made, per- it made, it made perfect sense to me because you can sing. I'm like, oh, his mom was an opera singer. and uh, he Yeah, got- my mother loves the rumor, by the way, but she's not an opera singer. No, my parents were both opera fans, and so they met um, in the audience of her performance many, many years ago. Really? Um, and somehow that transformed online to my mother being an opera singer. That's fantastic. Let it live. Yeah. Okay. So then now well, there's gonna... clearly nothing I can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> it gets taken on a life of its own. So uh, and yeah. now I'm going to take it one step further and, and uh, assume that it's true that your father was a refugee from uh, Nazi Germany. Is that true or false? That is true. Yes. Okay. So he, he came over here in... When? Like, like he came over here in 1939. He was a kid. Okay. Um, and that was definitely a big part of my sensibility growing up was um, to be part of a family, some of whom had made it out of Nazi Germany and some of whom hadn't. So he's a Jew. Um, he's, he's Jewish. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'm, I'm always, I always ask this of my Jewish friends because uh, I can't imagine that it wouldn't be so, but if you uh, are a child, you're an American child, uh, and you're Jewish, and you have ancestors, as so many American Jews do, who fled uh, Europe or somehow, you know, some somehow made it out. Um, I can't imagine that wouldn't play heavily on your on your psyche, you know, and your your sense of the world and your sense of danger in the world. Um, I think it for me it adds up to a worldview that. Um, is more random and has less causation. And I think actually that's at the heart of a series of unfortunate events is that these are children who are behaving well and they're not being rewarded as such. And if you grow up hearing stories about, oh, well, the soldiers looked here and they didn't look over here, or they decided to stay two more weeks and then the border was closed, or all these stories that happen. Right. Um, that leave you alive or dead or, you know, very successful in America or utterly destitute or dying of starvation or things like that. And I think for me, that's the, the worldview of the world is that kind of anything can happen and yeah. that we, we, we're in fragile comfort all the time. Right. And the other thing too, that the, the word that, that uh, occurs to me is luck. Um, yeah. So you believe in luck. Good and yeah, good I mean, and it's bad. something I and I and it's no, I something that I instill in my son all the time because he's getting to be old enough now that he's getting kind of snarky about it. But you know, he'll always say, "Why are we like? Why are we going to this restaurant or something?" And I'll say, "Because we're lucky. We're totally lucky. We can afford to, you know, go have a pizza now because we feel like in the middle of the day." And sometimes he'll say, like, that's not what I was asking. I was asking why this one and not the other one. <laughs> you know, like, don't teach me the same lesson over and over again. You're but, like, people are starving, son. You're lucky to have yeah. food. So what, what, what about luck in the context of your career? You've had an incredible amount of good fortune come your way. Yeah. Um, like, when you look back, can you point to, like, you know, you, you talked about, like, uh, in the context of uh, World War II, like, you know, staying for an extra two weeks, the the soldiers look the other way and they escape or whatever. Like, when you look back at your career... Obviously, it's a it's a different context, but like, can you point to moments where things pivoted for you, and that was what made all the difference? Even you know, yeah. Well, I've had the same literary agents um, since the beginning in Charlotte Sheedy, and she is not only a fantastic literary agent, but a really inspiring moral person. So, to have her come into my life at the dawn of my creative time, and to be with someone who was thinking carefully about the world and about social issues and tying that into literature and art and success was really great. And so then when so, I first how moved... So, how so? Can you, can you specify a little bit more about her? Because that sounds interesting. Well, 
She sees her job as finding interesting work that at first glance might not look commercial and finding its way in to the mainstream, which I think is not necessarily how all literary agents see it. I mean, they may be doing more or less the same thing, but I think they don't see it that way. And so she um, is always looking for work that's outside the mainstream and that's so interesting that you want to bring it in. And so she's represented a bunch of writers from across the spectrum. I mean, her first client basically was Audrey Lord, um, who was a black lesbian activist and poet. And I don't think many people saw her work at the beginning and got dollar signs in their eyes. Right. But she thought, oh, this person is such a revolutionary writer, and this is such a time when people are hungry for this, that we can bring this in and make that happen. And she's done that over and over again. It takes a skillful agent to be able to kind of get work um, like that into the mainstream. I mean, it, it takes more than just the agent, but that's a difficult thing to do. Well, and if you are, even if, say, she's trying to sell you and you're getting 37 letters of rejection, but you're, you're meeting with her from time to time, you begin to see um, literature as not being just about people's individual self-expression and certainly not about yours, but about kind of an enterprise that everyone should try to ennoble themselves when they're a part of. And then you just start writing and thinking carefully, you start cultivating relationships in such a way that aren't just for your own selfish networking purposes. And that's been really inspiring. And I think that, um, I certainly think that has brought me success, but also has made my life pleasant, whether or not independent of material success. That's interesting. So what you mean to say is that like, uh, you know, you might be out on book tour, you might be meeting people in a professional context, but it's not purely transactional. You're trying to make sure that it stays human. I, tr- I feel like liter- everyone who participates in literature is kind of on the same team. And I think that that idea came from early meetings with my literary agent, because then I was in my 20s and I felt like no one was in my team. You know, I just thought I was the coolest guy on earth and I was <laughs> terribly misunderstood. Right. Um, and... And so I think she encouraged a wider worldview. It's, ni- it's, nice, when somebody, it's nice when somebody has like a high-minded um, view of literature. It's so there, There's so much cynicism. I, I can slide into it very easily. So it's like nice to be reminded like that there is something uh, larger happening. Yeah. Well, I think we're all grasping the hem of something larger that is not only something that we can't grasp fully, but it's also constantly moving. And um, but we're all a part of it. It's all part of a stream that's nourishing us as we're contributing to it. And I think that's interesting and a nicer way to live than worrying about your own career. Yeah. No kidding. So, and do you, like, in terms but, you know, when I moved to New York, she had a party. I mean, she had a bunch of parties, but she would say, you're young and you're unpublished and you should come to these parties and meet your editor. And I would go to these parties and no one cared about me. And I would kind of pout in the corner. And with me in the corner were her assistant and her assistant's girlfriend, who was just invited, you know, as company for him. And um, both those people ended up being key parts of my professional life. The girlfriend, Susan Rich, is edited all the Snicket books. Interesting. <laughs> you know, but we would just sit around and say, we're supposed to be networking at this party, but no one cares about us. Seems like, like, let's just drink the wine out of these plastic cups and talk about books. And then we became friends and cohorts, and we've had a rich professional life together. Well, the, what, what's the old saying? You know, 80% of life is showing up. You know, like, yeah. Which, which makes me want to ask you, like, if you're talking to a young writer, how, how critical do you think it is for young writers to go to New York these days and to actually spend time there? Do you think it was, I mean, it obviously was vital for you, but do you think it's, it's a, a smart move for anybody who wants to pursue this? Well, it really depends what this is, I guess. I think that there's a much more exciting waves in independent publishing now than there was when I was young because of the web, which was a baby when I was young. Um, you know, so I see a lot of interesting work coming out through small presses that I think would have been something that I absolutely would have dug at the time. You know, to just take five short stories and get a friend of yours to paint a painting on the cover and, uh, publish it in a tiny edition or even a PDF and have the kind of network of tiny publishers who are excited about literature to be passing that around and to get that kind of 
satisfaction and encouragement and community that was completely denied and invisible to me when I was young. Mm. And so I see that happening, and I don't think you have to move to New York for that. I think if you want to, uh, you know, be on the board of Penn and um, know a bunch of people who are published by Knopf, then probably a time in New York is well spent. But, you know, it's kind of like, do you want to be a poet who's organizing really wonderful events in Colorado and all the poets are coming through and you're building your own community there? Or is it super important to you to be published in the New Yorker before you're 30? Um, And I I think that young writers now have more opportunities, more paths, or at least they know about those paths. Well, yeah, I think the internet's, I mean, the internet is where the community really lives. I mean, the, 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 the disparate community, like everybody sort of convenes there. And if you watch it enough, you see, certain names start to keep, you know, they, they start uh, appearing over and over again. And, uh, people make connections, you know, people are pretty friendly. It seems like, uh, like you, like you were talking about earlier with respect to everybody sort of on the same team. I really do think there is that kind of spirit uh, a lot of the time. And, uh, if somebody comes in and is, is earnest in their enthusiasm, they tend to be accepted readily. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, you certainly hear both sides of that when you're talking about the internet. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I try to think generously of other practitioners of literature, and I hope, and I see a lot of that generosity being uh, reciprocated and um, and practiced all over the place. But so, I, you know, I just think to think if you're working on a book, you're probably have a have a thoughtful persona, and you're probably looking askance at the world and. Um, you know that you're even if you say your social skills aren't the best, you you inside are thinking about things that are in common with what everyone is thinking about. Right. So uh, I want to get back to your childhood a little bit. What kind of kid were sure. you growing up in San Francisco? Um. What kind of kid was I? Um, I was a very serious reader. I was funny enough that I wasn't too much of an outcast. You know, I couldn't play sports, and I wasn't um, popular kind of in a mainstream, but neither was I constantly being bullied. Um, and then when adolescence hit, I went to a magnet school, um, Lowell High School. It's a public school, but you have to get good grades to get in. And I really found my peers there. I found a bunch of people who were interested in literature, and we would you know, have dinner parties modeled after our favorite F. Scott Fitzgerald short stories. And we would try to find restaurants that have been untouched since 1950. And we, um, you know, watched Truffaut movies at the Castro theater and drank espresso before it was cool. (laughs) And, uh, I don't know, drove around listening to like mid period Sonic youth and, um, craft work. Seems, so, it seems like almost it seemed, I was, it was, it was evoking Wes Anderson for me, something about it, or like Rushmore somehow. But Yeah, I think, I mean, I, we would have eaten up Wes Anderson with a spoon, I think, had he been making films when I was in high school. Right. Um, but Jim Jarmusch was cert- <laughs> super important to us. I don't know if he's quite the Wes Anderson of the previous generation, but it's somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, I'm still friends with all those people, but that was a really wonderful community to be a part of. And San Francisco is a really great community to live in when you're doing that. Sure. And like there was, no, it, it also seems like San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco is notoriously uh, tolerant um, in a good way. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a very, uh, it's got a very like liberal social values and people are kind of free to be themselves in ways that maybe they're not in other places. And it seems to me, cause I come yeah, from, I think I, it definitely spoiled me. When I was growing up, I thought that what I liked about San Francisco was that it was kind of a mid-sized city. I don't even know where I got that. But, <laughs> and then when I was in college, I remember I lived for one summer in Boston and then basically one summer in Pittsburgh. And I thought, oh, actually, I think what I like about San Francisco is San Francisco. Yeah, it's like, it's like <laughs> Narnia. It's not just like any half a million to 700,000 people who are gathered. It has to be those ones back home. Well, right. And, and the thing, too, it's like, but it, like as, a, as an adolescent, it seems like the kind of place where there would be less to rebel against. I mean, I guess all teenagers maybe feel like they have to rebel against something. But if I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I dare say you can always find something. Yeah. You know, my wife grew up in the suburbs, and she's always saying, well, there was one record store, and you went there, and if they hadn't heard of the Smiths, then you didn't know who, who the Smiths were. 
you know, if it was run by two long-haired classic rock guys, then you never got a David Bowie album until you were 19. And in San Francisco, there was everything available all the time. Right. You have pretty. And that my, I don't know how that compares now to kind of if you're on the web and you can find stuff, but you know, we would go to these art house movie theaters and see old movies we'd never heard of just because we kind of trusted the taste making that was going on and they were revolutionary. Wow. I'm jealous. So did you, uh, did you ever have like a, a period where you freaked out and like, uh, did a bunch of drugs or got in a bunch of trouble and spent time in prison or anything we need to know about? Um, no, I wasn't much of a druggie. I had some sexual experimentations that um, I could have been more judicious about for sure, but what I you, didn't have any, mean? I mean, uh, had too many sexual encounters with too many people of various genders and persuasions. Right. But you know, I didn't, that, which could have killed me, I guess that didn't, um, yeah, no, I wasn't, uh, I don't know. I, li- I like the world of glamour. And um, what passed for sophistication when you're 15 and 16. So, right. Um, I, it, you know, would have been uh, it, it just would have been beneath me to do hard drugs or drive too fast or anything like that. Yeah, because you're in San Francisco. It's like, oh yeah. I mean, it's like it's easy to get. It's, there's nothing. There's no allure, you know. Yeah, I mean, we were just we were about kind of trying chartreuse and Campari and sitting on a hill and watching the moon rise and <laughs> trying to read Emily Dickinson. So, so it doesn't, it, it doesn't sound like you were a hippie at all. Like a San Francisco has that element too, though you though you live in the hate now, I guess it's changed. Uh, yeah, I live, I mean, I live definitely very close to central hippiedom. And I think that if you live in San Francisco, there's certain aspects of hippie culture that are going to, trickle down to you but i wasn't the classic hippie at all okay my hair was always short but then you went to wesleyan you got good grades smart guy went to wesleyan correct yeah or is the internet lying about that too like, no you- <laughs> yeah you must be paranoid now that every fact is untrue yeah nothing i don't know what to believe it's a world of lies <laughs> uh but you went to wesleyan you played in bands uh in college is that right or no yeah a little bit yeah okay um i had had a very serious classical music education and um i wasn't really interested in pop music until about halfway through high school really and then um i was interested in making music and was in bands in college and a little bit after college too and then i've fallen in with the magnetic field which is kind of a great way to keep your rock star fantasy alive yeah how did that happen um I basically pursued Stephen Merritt, not with the intention of being in his band, but because I really liked his work and I moved to New York and um, I just wanted to meet artists who were important to me and who I might work with in some capacity. And I met him and um, I mean, I basically let it be known among a couple of music journalists I knew that I wanted to meet him and then ended up on the phone with his manager, Claudia, who said, oh yeah, he writes songs at the same go down there so i just went down there and introduced myself and we started talking about this henry james novel that we both liked and then i mentioned that i played the accordion and he said oh i'm trying to do this recording session would you come down the next day and record with odetta and so i did which on this song that ended up being on the sixth record but um so how did you learn we we had sensibilities and we just started working together a lot so how did you learn how to play the accordion who picks up the accordion it seems like such an odd instrument to wind up playing (laughs) Well, I'd taken piano forever when I was growing up. And then when I was in college and I wanted to be in bands, it was during this strange moment in American pop music history where no keyboard instruments were cool. It was like the the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s where, for some reason, keyboards seemed hopelessly artificial. It was like synthesizer overkill, you know, after the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like grunge was just beginning to happen, and so no bands had, like, a synthesizer player. That was not at all cool. And um, so I took up the accord. I just bought an accordion because I thought, oh, well, look, that's a keyboard over there. And it turned out to be pretty great. Um, I mean, the bands I was in were all lousy, but... Um, you could play a million different styles of music on the accordion. And then also 
as I always say, if you're an accordion player, you're probably the best accordion player anybody knows. Right. <laughs> you know, so if I said to Stephen Merritt, oh, I play a little bit of guitar, he would have said, how nice for you. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. You actually scored by playing the accordion because he's got like nobody else in his orbit who probably does that. I guess, though, I guess somebody who plays the piano could teach themselves or is that, I mean, how much of a curve is it? Yeah, there? it's not, I mean, it's not super hard to teach yourself. Um, but it's still kind of, it's just unusual, I guess. Yeah. Is that how you met your wife? You pulled out the accordion and... Um, yeah, well, I always say because I wanted to be in bands and I took up the accordion that I basically took up the accordion in order to meet women. <laughs> and I did, in fact, meet my wife in college, but I met her in about the last 10 minutes of my college career. So was the, accord- was the accordion involved in any way? No, I think she loved me despite the accordion. I think she loves me despite the accordion. Right. I'm not sure she's really warmed up to the accordion entirely. <laughs> so you've got this, this, this note card, uh, this pile of note cards on your dining room table. <laughs> you're done. Are you done with the We Are uh, Pirates tour? Are you done with all publicity? I mean, is this the last thing you're doing, or you still got more stuff to do? Uh, I have here and there a couple of things. I'm, um, I have some friends who run uh, reading series. I have a friend who's running a new reading series, and I have another friend who runs one, and I'm going to go and do that. I mean, I like the book a lot, and I like talking about it, so I didn't grow sick of it over the course of the tour. But I'm happy to be home. I'm yeah. happy not to be traveling around and, you're, um, and working again. Ohio in the winter. Right. And uh, and you're working on this book. Uh, that that's the main focus right now. There's no there's no other creative projects we need. You're not cutting an album with, uh, you know, I don't know, some some other bands. <laughs> um, no, I I'm working with Netflix um, on their adaptation of a series of unfortunate events. So I anticipate that that will begin to move to the front burner in the next couple months. Oh, so Netflix is doing it. Yeah, they're going to do all 13 volumes, which is oh, great. Oh, interesting. So, okay, so here's a question because I live in Los Angeles. Okay. I'm sort of, I have a proximity to the entertainment business, and I'm just curious uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've worked at least a little bit with people in Hollywood um, in the maybe the more, what do you call it, the more traditional system, and Netflix would seem to be um, part of like the new, the new system or at least something to that effect. Is there a difference in working with Netflix versus working with uh, – you know, more entrenched Hollywood uh, studios? Um, we're so early in the process, it's almost impossible to know. But um, I do think that um, Netflix is very interested in the processes by which people get their entertainment. And so because there's so many ways to do that, I think they can make a kind of wider swath of entertainment and not be worried so much about um, the individual content of things. Right. So it's my impression that every line of the script will not be looked at by a phalanx of executives and that um, when we have an actor do some work, there's not going to be, she's not going to step off camera and have a million people give opinions about her hairstyle and things like that. Right. <laughs> I think that they're focusing on, how can we get this to the most amount of people and get it in front of people? And they're letting the people who are making the thing, make the thing. Are you going to do a cameo? A cameo? I haven't felt that far. Right now we're looking for a director. Okay. So. I, think you should, I, think you should, I think you should demand some screen time. You've got some. Well, my sister is definitely all about getting into this. Okay. She would like to be on screen for sure. All right. Well, I can't tell you how uh, much I appreciate uh, the time, and I congratulate you on We Are Pirates. I'm glad that we got a chance to feature it in the TMB Book Club. Over Me too. At the, over at the Nervous Breakdown, and um, I just wish you all the best going forward. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate your interest, and uh, I like the idea of my novel arriving at least somewhat unexpectedly on people's doorsteps. All right, guys, there you go. That is Daniel Handler. Go get his novel. It's called We Are Pirates, and it's available now from Bloomsbury. You can find him online at danielhandler.com. You can find him on Facebook. He's also on the Twitter, where his handle is at danielhandler. His handler is at danielhandler. You know what I'm saying. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget to sign up for the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. Also, uh, this podcast has its own app. It has its own official app. Get the app. The app is free. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android. It's available for your iPad. Get the app. It's free. 
And then once you have the app, you can sign up for premium. That allows you to stream all of the episodes. You get 50 episodes for free. If you want to stream the deep archives, sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very cheap. Support the show. Help me feed my second child. Help me feed my first child. Help me feed myself. I'll feed my children first, and then I'll feed myself. I promise you that. My email address is letters at other PPL if you want to, uh, dot com if you want to email me. Letters at other PPL dot com. I'm going to go to the dentist with a uh, significant but often dormant cough. It only comes out here and there. Maybe when I'm lying back in the dental chair, it will trigger as my teeth are being cleaned and I will explode into a tubercular cough. That could happen. I'm not afraid of that though. I feel like my dentist is sort of a con woman. Is that a thing? A con woman? She's always trying to upsell me. She's always telling me that I need shit done that I don't need done. I don't trust any doctors. I'm paranoid. I live in a world of paranoia. Everyone's out to get me. Especially medical professionals. That's okay, right? I'll pass that down to my children. Please remember that Ulysses, The Wasteland, and Reader's Digest all debuted in 1922 and that Schopenhauer had a poodle named Atma. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks to Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket. Go get We Are Pirates. Thanks to Bloomsbury. Check out thenervousbreakdown.com. Check out the book club. Check it all out, folks. And uh, I'll be back in a week with another episode. I don't, I'm not going back to two episodes anytime soon because I'm so deep into this book. Knock on wood for me. I just jostled the microphone. I need to. I need to not jinx myself here. I'm in. I'm in the zone. I'm writing. I'm working on a book. I can see it. That's a good feeling. You know what I'm saying? Where you can see the book, as opposed to not being able to see the book that you're writing. It's not good if you're writing a book if, that you know if you can't see it. <laughs> That's my advice to you. I've come up with that all on my own. Mm-hmm.